Bitcoiners, welcome back to FedWatch. I'm here with Ansel and we have an awesome show lined up for you. Ansel has broken down a lot of stuff that's happening all across the globe with central banks. This one is going to be titled Central Bank Cluelessness. And uh, we're going to also dive into the Bitcoin market. Bitcoin just smashed its all-time highs once again earlier this week. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of analysis behind what's happening there. Ansel, before we get into all this, how are you feeling? How you how do you celebrate the all-time highs? I, for one, I ate a steak and uh, got on Twitter spaces and chatted up with some Bitcoiners. But uh, how, how was your night last night and uh, how are things in general? Oh, good. I don't have any special thing that I do for all-time highs other than I do text my one family member that also owns Bitcoin. So that's uh, always a kind of a tradition. But uh, no, I'm just getting back from Kansas City. I was at Bitcoin Day out there in Kansas City, and that event was awesome. Uh, so yeah, on Monday, just got home with the family and spent time. Didn't really watch the charts, honestly, until later in the day. Yeah, so let's talk about Bitcoin Day. Um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of what they are doing. Uh, I think this is their third or fourth Bitcoin Day that they've done. And this is a Bitcoin-only conference that's really targeting smaller uh, cities in the U.S., and trying to do a really community-oriented, Bitcoin-only, awesome one-day event. Uh, and they're teaming up with the local meetups. And uh, I've been super, super impressed with everything they've did. Uh, the Kansas City event, I was had a lot of FOMO for not being there. It looked like it was a ton of fun. Um, and I know they have one in Sacramento planned that I'm going to be trying to be. I'm actually going to try to be at. So, um, yeah, I guess tell us about Kansas City. I know you spoke at that. I want to hear about your talk. Get into all that. Yeah, so Kansas is yeah very small event, just over a hundred people. Um, we got together um, the night prior for like a um, just a social event, and then we had all day on Saturday of talks, and so that was really cool. The event space was really really nice. They try to pick out the really um, event spaces that have something else going on where you can be a little bit active and uh, you know have conversation with each other in the community rather than just speakers speaking at the crowd they want a lot of interaction you know they have lunch and good beers and it, it was it was really fun so yeah i'm even thinking about possibly doing one down in jacksonville where i live now so um yeah and i was involved with the very first bitcoin day this was an idea that uh myself and edward came up with he's still running this bitcoin day thing uh, back in 2014 in Omaha. So we had the first Bitcoin day then. It's a very similar concept, a small town, small hundred or less people just to you know really build a community there of, of Bitcoiners. And uh, then they're still running with it. They did Omaha this year. They did Kansas City, Sacramento, perhaps Jacksonville. You know, they're open to other cities. So if you guys are in meetups in maybe smaller markets, right? Then you can uh, contact Bitcoin Day at Bitcoin Day IO and possibly get a scheduled event in 2022. Yeah, no, uh, again, I, I think it's, uh, they're, what they're doing is awesome. Uh, I think that there's this resurgence in local grassroots meetups and I love what they're doing, integrating uh, their kind of smaller one-day events, uh, much more like meetup, like almost like, uh, helping meetups do a super meetup you know once a year in different cities that's kind of like what it is and i love it i think it's awesome and you know i'm excited that bitcoin magazine was involved in this last one what did you talk about in your talk i'm, I'm curious uh about the topic and you know how big the room was and all that good stuff yeah well you know me it's uh gonna be a deflationary talk so i did a kind of a credit cycle a long-term credit cycle talk and uh, they also had me on the schedule for Bitcoin maximalism, which I didn't prepare for, but I went ahead and I just talked about for five or 10 minutes. Um, my last, my latest report uh, that my newsletter I do every Friday, I kind of summarized what I, what I was going to say. And so uh, I think we're going to go over that. No, we're not going to go over that one. We're going to go over another piece that I wrote yesterday on my website, but um, yeah, deflation credit cycle kind of blew people's minds a little bit, I think, because, you know, the space is, I, I don't know if people are ready for it. It might not even have been a good talk for, you know, one Bitcoin 101, followed by Ansel Lindner talking about long-term credit cycle and deflation. You know, it doesn't quite <laughs> fit up, but there was a lot of questions. I think my presentation might've gotten the most questions from the audience 
So um, yeah, it was a good time. Well, I mean, I hope that uh, a lot of the people in the audience who wanted to learn more subscribe to the show because we talk about this all the time and I have to give you a lot of credit. You've been a big uh, part of just educating me and helping me kind of be a lot really ahead of the curve in a lot of what's happening in macro. So uh, I really think everyone should be listening to more of Ansel and his opinion. And, you know, a lot of people disagree with Ansel and just understanding why people disagree with Ansel and where Ansel is coming from and the, you know, a lot of uh, kind of his perspectives on macro, Bitcoin, uh, the greater crypto economy. Like, dude, you've just been spot on so many things. So uh, people should try to study what you're putting out. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely trying to amplify that with this show. Yeah, just question your assumptions. Um, I think that's the, I think I trigger people because they don't want to question some of their assumptions that they formed way back when. And, you know, they need to update what they're thinking with with current uh, data but all right anyway, well, do you want to get into the fed news for this week yeah let's get into it and i also want to also tack on you know talking about just the inflation narrative too at the end of uh fed news but uh let's let's get into it all right so kind of the big news this week a little bit uh or the biggest news this week from the fed was uh governor randall quarles um he is obviously a member of uh, the Federal Reserve Board, and he stepped down. He resigned. Uh, his term wasn't going supposed to end for another 10 years, I believe, or 11 years. So this was kind of out of the blue. But uh, And there was no controversy like the previous guys that stepped down earlier this year from uh, Kaplan and Rosengren. They were kind of in the middle of some trading uh, scandal. Uh, but this guy, uh, Randall Corals, he just is stepping down because I think he's tired of getting bashed by the progressives. So he and Powell have both been taking heat from people like Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren, uh, and other progressives in Congress. And so I think he's just kind of tired of it. It also might be a chess move, a, you know, moving a chess piece because uh, Brainerd was favored for his position, which is head of supervision. And I'm not exactly sure what that entails i think it is something to do with the open the trading desk there for the new york fed um but brainerd was favored for that position and then she kind of got in and started uh competing against powell for his appointment as chairman so perhaps uh corals is stepping down to make room for brainerd to kind of leave powell open for reappointment um, i have a couple things here to share I just wanted to share my screen real quick if I could. Okay, so uh, Powell, I just refreshed this. So Powell is sitting at 67%, Brainerd at 37. Um, he's kind of been trailing off slightly, but uh, still holding strong in where he has been for the last about 45 days. Um, I think Powell is going to get a reappointment and I think that's good in the respect that you know, he has been stiff arming CBDCs, which we have talked about. And uh, I think he has some hawkish bone in his body where he's not going to just do all the easy monetary policy. So that's good that he's pushing back against some of these progressives and some of these other people that uh, MMT type folks. So um, that's my update on this part of the Fed. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to dive in. I've never spent so much time, you know, paying attention to the game of chess that's happening in Washington all the time. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like I get politics more than I ever have really now. And uh, it, it really is just an icky game, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that Bitcoin is here to kind of eliminate any sort of um, discretion in monetary policy and just, you know, standardize this like we've standardized measurements and math and you know everything else that has helped us advance as a as a species absolutely okay moving on to the next thing is the fed stability report this is a biannual report that comes out every may and november and that is strictly to um kind of do add transparency to uh the federal reserve's I guess their framework here, I'll read this. This is the financial stability report uh, description. This report summarizes the Federal Reserve Board's framework for assessing the resilience of the US financial system and presents the board's current assessment. 
By publishing this report, the, the board intends to promote public understanding and increase transparency and accountability for the Federal Reserve's views on this topic. Um, so two things kind of big in the headlines that came out of this. The first one is the Fed is warning about uh, rising prices of risky assets. So this would be like stocks and even real estate some places in the United States. So that's one thing that people have been pulling out of this uh, assessment. But the thing that I thought was really interesting was they called out China and Evergrande, which we have been talking about uh, for months now on the show. But uh, they, they highlight the risk of the contagion over there from Evergrande. The Federal Reserve warned that fragility in China's commercial real estate sector would spread to the U.S. if it deteriorated dramatically as a sell-off across Chinese developers, dollar bonds hit higher quality borrowers. And I had something else I wanted to read. The Fed's stability report, which is meant to highlight risks that could undermine the financial system, said that, quote, financial stresses in China could strain global financial markets through a deterioration of risk sentiment, pose risks to global economic growth and affect the United States. Um, so they're calling out China here. I think this is uh, very interesting. It's not that they are behind the eight ball too much here because they uh, their warning came as holders of dollar notes sold by Evergrande unit Scenery Journey Limited had yet to receive payment for coupons that were officially due on Saturday. So Evergrande continues to miss these payments. And I had a chart here. You can see on this chart, um, these are all the US dollar bond payments that they have uh, throughout the year. It says uh, they need to repay some 7.4 billion in maturing bonds next year. So are they gonna be able to do that? You know, This is just a rolling contagion that could get worse and worse. Um, I still think there is something to this. Uh, I've tweeted recently about the demographic decline in China is going to make it so their real estate market just simply don't, they don't have the people to bounce back from this bubble. Uh, so it could, it could get worse. And the Fed here is saying that there's contagion around the world, uh, even into the United States. So we'll see how that goes. Usually though, in the past, in the last 12 years since the great financial crisis, um, Contagion usually doesn't come back towards the U.S. Uh, contagion usually either starts in the U.S. or uh, starts in Europe and affects Asia. But it, you know, if it starts outside of the United States, usually that contagion doesn't affect the U.S. too much. Uh, but we will talk about energy here in a little bit. Uh, that could be a different part of the story. So do you have any comments on this idea of the stability report from the Fed? I mean, I don't think I have any anything super intelligent to add, um, but it's it's interesting to see. You know, the Fed seems to always kind of the reporting is a little bit later. All their activities is kind of delayed. Uh, I feel like people think that they're calculated, uh, but personally, I, I, they might just be slow. I don't know. Like uh, maybe like you're saying, you know, the, this Evergrande thing isn't going away. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how it all plays out again. Uh, we've been pointing out how there, there's a lot of things on fire, right? So, you know, Evergrande is just one of many fires and we'll see what, what's next too, because I feel like these things are just going to continue to compound. Yeah, so moving on to the next story uh, is, well, of course, the Fed decided or announced their taper. That was not a surprise for us. Uh, they announced it after we, we recorded last week's show, but we were expecting it. So um, it wasn't uh, top on the list here to talk about. But uh, the U.S. Treasury's um, yield curve is still slightly inverted. I'm going to share my screen once again. For everyone to see these charts, if you go to YouTube and find the Bitcoin Magazine's uh, channel and we have uh, our episodes there and all the charts you can see but um so this blue line over here on the left is the yield curve and right at the top the 20 and the 30 it's still inverted only by one basis point but that's significant if you take a look at the prior years so here's 2019 and the difference was over 10 basis points and in 2020, the difference was over 20 basis points. So this is inverted at, at still at the long end of the curve, 
curve and that's significant. I also so wanted to just to just to clarify to the listeners what inverted means. Effectively, what the chart is showing is that um, theoretically bonds moving further into the future should yield more. And inverted right. means is that there is a bond that uh, you know is pushed out. The thirty-year bond is yielding less than bonds that are maturing sooner, um, which means that the yield curve is inverted or it is you know that that's a signal that there's something wrong because theoretically the future should pay you know if you wait longer you should get paid out more correct yeah and there's uh, more inversions here i talked about this last week as well um but this is the five and ten year break evens uh, we are at an all-time high for inversion and uh, usually as you can see here on the chart the red line is the 10-year break even and the blue line is the five-year break-even. So we should see, I mean, we want to see in a healthy sort of economy, we want to see the 10-year above the five-year, relatively significantly too. We don't want to see them like a couple basis points. You want to see a, a bigger spread. Uh, but right now, pretty much this entire year, they've been inverted and the inversion is getting worse. I have another chart here that just shows the uh, total inversion. This in... Back in March, it got down. It, the the inversion got to 25 basis points, and that was tying a record at the time. And now we have blown that out of the water. It touched uh, as low as, I think it's 38 basis points of inversion. So something is wrong. We have two types of inversions going on, and uh, that to me is significant. I also wanted to point out the U.S. Uh, 10 year minus the U.S. two year. This is the main headline. When, they, when you hear about yield curve inversion, this is what they're talking about most of the time, of the 10-year and the two-year. And as you can see, um, pretty much this entire year, it, it has trended back down. And so that means that the, um, the spread between those two rates is getting smaller, signaling a weakening of the recovery or whatever you want to call it. I also wanted to point out on this chart, it looks a little bit like a shitcoin chart because it runs up real quick, then it slowly grinds down, runs up real quick, slowly grinds down. And this could be uh, another example of that. We could just see a squeezing of that spread uh, on the yield curve, you know, out through the entirety of 2022, and we'll have to see what happens. But I have a feeling there could be a some so, sort of recession Ansel, this is not a coming soon. This Sorry. is not a cupping pattern. This is lower lows. Is this what is that what you're saying? Lower lows. Uh, no, it's not lower lows because zero is inverted. You know, if it goes below zero, so the inversion is was really bad back here in uh, before the financial the great financial crisis. We touched barely inverted in uh, right before uh, like August of 2020. And we're significantly outside of the danger zone of going inverted, but it is decreasing, which to me signals tightening money and slowing economy. Isn't it interesting that before the COVID crisis is when we touched on inversion? Yeah, significantly before too. I mean, it was August of 2019 and that it was before the repo rumble, remember? Because the repo rumble is, was September. So yep. it was before the September and October was big. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, <laughs> this gets into why I think sometimes I'm like, man, uh, who's in control? Who is really in control of this market? Because some of these things like the yield curve inversion, you want to say, no way that this could be a legitimate signal again and again and again. And every time it is. So uh, we'll see as the, as the spread decreases we'll see how the economy goes scary stuff man scary stuff maybe that's just the the single signal right there is that spread and uh and every time it it hits inverted shit is about to hit the fan yo what is going on plebs we're going to take a break from our programming to tell you about the resurrection of our print magazine starting with the el salvador issue Starting this fall, Bitcoin Magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as Barnes & Noble. 
Don't want to get off your couch though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout. Yeah. What's next, Antel? Yeah, we got CPI uh, is tomorrow as we're recording this. So it's the day that we're this podcast will be released is CPI uh, is coming out for October. I think it's going to be a bigger number than even we have seen it could be as high as six percent but i don't know the to me like with all of the supply chain drama and all the bottlenecks going on i would expect it to be 10 percent. you know as much as people have been hollering about all this stuff but we're barely above where we were last month so um that's coming tomorrow this affects uh the bitcoin narrative possibly because we could see uh, more and more people screaming about inflation. What are what's your hot take on the inflation narrative? Well, I mean, I tend to agree with you, and I think Aaron Segal, who wrote uh, a great piece on Bitcoin Magazine, the pitfalls of the inflation narrative, and I think we we spoke about that on this podcast. And you speak about this all the time: is you want Bitcoiners to be right. Uh, and Bitcoin doesn't need inflation to be a better system. Bitcoin is just a uh, I was actually on a podcast yesterday uh, recording uh, with folks from uh, South America who are working on RSK and and uh, and Bitcoin down there. And, you know, he said Bitcoin is not a revolution. Bitcoin is evolution. Right. So Bitcoin doesn't need inflation to evolve how we communicate value and store value and 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 operate as a society. Um, but with that being said, like. I find it really weird that people are embracing the quote unquote inflation narrative so hard when what is actually happening is severe supply chain disruption, right? Like prices are going up because severe supply chain disruption from political and uh, COVID related uh, measures. That's flat out. That is why prices are going up. So I find it very odd that they're all of a sudden blaming it on inflation right? They're not blaming it on their measures. So I find that to be very odd. Um, we know why prices are going up. It's because the whole supply chain is fucked, right? The entire thing, every level, on every level of the supply chain, it is messed up. And that's painful. It's going to keep getting more painful. Yeah, that's the problem with not defining inflation properly, right? They, their idea of inflation is just price increases. So anytime any price goes up, it's inflation. And that, to me, that's maddening because like you say, how do you even um, pinpoint, you know, you want to be right for the right reason. You don't want to be right for the wrong reason because then you can make mistakes on your uh, investment and uh, all that stuff. But I love that saying that this is an evolution because, you know, what I think of the dollar system as we know it right now, dying and, you know, what happens at the end of life? I'm thinking of like, you know, an EKG with the heart rate monitor, right? The, it's a flat line. And I think the economy is going to flat line. There's going to be no growth, no inflation. It's just going to be dead. And that's where Bitcoin, you know, the only way you're going to get life back in the economy is you need to evolve to the next form of money. And I think that is going to be Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the stats already show that um, velocity of money is decreasing, productivity is decreasing. Um, all of these things are flatlining. They're they're like the system is dead. It's on its last limbs. Uh, so I think Bitcoin already, you can see that's where the yield are. Those are the hottest stocks are the mining stocks. Like that's pretty much the Bitcoin industry. You know, Bitcoin is the number one asset. Crypto is the number one asset class, right? Whatever. So like that, that is where all the growth is. And it's not, uh, and it's not in, in anything that's kind of like this older system, the older system, we know the dynamic. It's pretty much assets go up, everything else is grinding down, services, quality, grinding down. 
Yeah, I thought uh, you brought up a velocity of money. I think that's a great point because if you look at the velocity of the dollar, it's continuing to crater. But if you look at the velocity of Bitcoin, you know, BTC on-chain volume, it's going up dramatically. So uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a very uh, good comparison. Also, you know, in my talk at, at the Kansas City Bitcoin Day, um, I pointed out that this uh, interest rate fallacy that high rates of interest follow high rates of growth and vice versa. Low interest rates follow from low rates of growth. And so we see the interest rates in the Bitcoin space. I mean, I haven't checked them recently, but um, you know, we, there is high rates of interest just for lending out your Bitcoin relative to the traditional system. So if you just look at the interest rates, you know that Bitcoin is where the growth is because that's where interest rates are higher. And to get that, interest rate, you need to buy Bitcoin first, then lend out the, the Bitcoin at a higher rate. So um, I think comparing the interest rates in the two traditional space and the Bitcoin space also shows you that Bitcoin is where the growth is. That That is going to be the story. Yeah. And you know who has been spot on on this? I feel like it's been you. You've been pushing that narrative for the longest time, uh, as far as I as far as I can tell. So um, that's absolutely going to be the differentiator. And I think we're seeing it in real time. You know, we're seeing it in front of our eyes. Absolutely. Okay, let's go on to the ECB real quick. I just have a couple updates on that because I don't want to forget our friends across the pond. I don't want to concentrate too much on the United States. But uh, okay, so ECB, man, there's there's not as much news in the headlines, honestly, to report on here. But um, there is one thing I'm going to share my screen again, just so people can see my headlines here. Okay, so the ECB talked about uh, uh, Christine Lagarde, that's her name, is the president of the ECB, and she said that they are very unlikely to raise rates in 2022. I had some highlights on this page, but they disappeared for some reason, but um, uh, I wanted to, oh, I wanted to pull out the last paragraph here. This is by uh, one of the members of the ECB from Spain. And he says, our assessment is that the current inflationary surge is mainly due to factors of a transitory nature. Remember, they, they have jumped on this transitory vocabulary after the Fed started this. But anyways, although these factors could show a higher degree of persistence than initially estimated, so that we expect to continue to see relatively higher rates of inflation in the coming months. But their inflation rates are lower than the United States. Um, I'll just point that out. Other news from the Bank of Japan, uh, they cannot get their inflation off of the floor still. They're still like under 1% inflation. Uh, and every week, it seems like the BOJ policymakers are coming out and just, they're just restating like, no, no, we are committed to getting inflation. We're trying to get inflation. We're trying to be as irresponsible as possible, but uh, we just can't seem to get inflation. So that is the, <laughs> that's the only new update from the BOJ. But talking about these two things here, uh, I wanted to bring up this chart. So this is from Yardani Research, and I'll, of course, link to this and, and show this in the show notes for everybody. Um, but you can see that the just insane levels of quote unquote printing that the Bank of Japan has done and the ECB has done relative to the United States. And this chart is relative to GDP. So it's a little bit uh, skewed, but just look at this. And if you were to map out this with inflation rates, it would be the exact opposite, right? So the BOJ is the lowest inflation rate, even though they've quote unquote printed the most total assets to GDP. The ECB would have the next lowest interest rate, and they have, quote unquote, printed the most uh, second most to the Bank of Japan. And then the Fed has the highest inflation rate, yet we have printed the least compared to GDP than any other major central bank. So I think that is very interesting. And I wanted to, uh, I'll stop sharing here for a second. Um, I wanted to challenge the listeners. Maybe we'll cut this out. I don't know. But uh, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but if you guys are listening to the show and you tweet at me, um, you know, the Bitcoin magazine puts out a tweet every week for this show. If you quote that tweet and then answer this question with your best answer, 
uh, I'll give away a copy of the Bitcoin dictionary uh, to the best answer that I think is uh, to, that answers this question. And that is, if the United States is supposed to be exporting inflation, why are the ECB and the BOJ's inflation rates so much lower than the US's when they have printed more money relative to GDP? So uh, anyways, back to you, Christian, what do you think of all this uh, comparisons here, all these comparisons? Well, I definitely think you should tweet that challenge out uh, when we tweet this out tomorrow, um, just to make it as easy as possible for people to respond. And I'm definitely going to blow that up. Um, but, you know, I, for the most part, you know, I, I feel like I agree with you. I'm not an expert here. So like, <laughs> it's difficult for me to give a super um, authoritative answer to, per se. Um, but, you know, I tend to agree that what we're seeing is really bad ways to measure and allocate capital. We're seeing that across the board. It's all centralized control. None of these central banks actually control these systems in the wild. Uh, and, you know, the more that they do, the more that they mess up, really. And it actually is just a huge weight. Just like I think we're seeing this with many things that the government intervenes in, is that they just are a huge weight on that area. And we're seeing that now with health and COVID, like what have they done? They've just put huge weights on everyone's life, everyone's health. Um, so they're not helping with anything. And if you were to like take what you're experiencing in COVID and then apply that to literally everything else that the government touches, I think that you can probably draw that the, the, the end result is the same It's deflation. It's a drag, right? So all this activity, the more activity that they do in the markets, it's just going to keep dragging down the market, is my opinion. And, you know, I think that aligns with your thesis and that aligns with the charts that you showed us. Spot on. We're on the same wavelength. Uh, wh where do you want to go next with this? Uh, do you want to go down to the macro rundown I did? Well, I mean, like, I guess, what do you like? Prices are going up in, in Europe, too, right? Like, what is are there inflation narratives there, even though? theoretically, like they're not seeing any inflation. Um, like what's the experience on the street for people in Japan and in Europe? And uh, are you keeping track of that too? Well, I haven't uh, looked at the specific numbers, but um, in Japan, they are starting to notice uh, inflation in energy and food and things of that nature. They're not uh, isolated from the world's concerns um, completely, but their inflation rates very low. Uh, even with those things counted, I would say it's probably less than 1% inflation. But for somebody, you know, a country that's used to around zero, 1% is noticeable. Uh, in, the, at, in the, or for the ECB, they have, I believe it was 3.6% inflation in um, September. I haven't seen the update for October yet. I don't know if it is out, but uh, they are noticing inflation as well. And there is this like, uh, I saw a headline for <laughs> German citizens are starting to get upset with the ECB because they keep saying transitory inflation. Um, and it's very similar to here in the US, a lot of segments of the market are, you know, making fun of the Fed that's or making fun of people that will say, yeah, this is transitory. And they still say that. Um, because it doesn't seem to be transitory right now. But remember, in these long grand scheme of things, like I showed you the, the rate, uh, the chart for the 10, the yield curve inversion, 10 minus two. And that takes a long time to develop. I mean, it takes several years for that spread to decrease just maybe uh, 2%. From 4% down to 2%, it takes three years. Well, during that time, you know, uh, it, the, the trend is still continuing, but it just takes a long time to get there. Now, transitory inflation could be one year, right? Well, what real inflation would be is year after year of five to 10% inflation, not just six months or well, one year of inflation and back. Unfortunately, that's what the developing world is experiencing. So um, I think prices are going up for everyone, but people in the developing world, they're the ones who are actually feeling inflation and monetary debasement, you know, that is affecting them in a very, very real way. Yeah. And um, the Arab Spring, have you talked about this on a recent podcast, by the way? 
Don't think so. No. Okay. But um, yeah, the Arab Spring started really after the great financial crisis and food inflation was hitting the world. And right now we see food inflation again and energy inflation. Uh, now, a lot of the emerging markets tend to be around in warmer climates. And so I don't know if they would be hurt all that much by high heating costs and stuff like Europe is going to be in the US might be and China too. But um, that is kind of scary when you think about, okay, so the uh, Arab Spring started because of rising food prices, or at least that was a contributing factor. What will we see this time when we have surging food prices and su surging energy prices? And the, okay, here's something interesting about the surging energy prices. Are the energy prices because of inflation or is it because energy is being sabotaged across the globe in the name of ESG? You know, energy facilities are being wow. decommissioned. Nuclear facilities are being decommissioned. Uh, you know, a lot of the oil and gas, you know, whatever your opinion on, like if they are long-term sustainable, they are being proactively taken down. You know, is that inflation or is that, you know, the supply chain being attacked, right? Because I feel like that's something that we've been pointing out for a long time. And I think that is a much more logical explanation for a lot of the price increases that people across the globe are experiencing. Well, yeah. And I mean, they're just kind of slitting their own throat on that kind of stuff, because uh, I think we both agree that the oil and petroleum products are the best form of energy. So um, they're just getting themselves deeper into a hole. I think it's also interesting that um, OPEC and the U.S. are both curtailing their production. So the U.S. now is right around 11 and a half million barrels of oil every day. That's how much is produced here. But prior to COVID, we were getting really close to 14 million barrels per day. So, and Biden has closed down the Keystone pipeline. Now he's threatening to close down another pipeline in uh, the north part of the country. And so uh, it seems like if push comes to shove, the US could pump out 2 million more barrels of oil a day to meet global demand and OPEC similarly. So uh, it's almost like we don't, they, these companies don't want to produce this because they like the high prices. I mean, obviously, they like to sell oil at $85 a barrel instead of $50 a barrel, right? So I, I don't know if it's so much um, shooting themselves in the foot with closing down nuclear power plants or if it is also the kind of cabal that we see in energy production. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, again, I feel like this is where Bitcoin being proof of work and requiring energy is so, so important. Because when you understand that um, energy certainty is something that is not part of the current incentive structure, uh, you get very concerned because we are all used to having energy certainty. And energy certainty and availability of energy is key to moving the masses forward. Maybe it's not key for keeping the elite comfortable, but it's key for moving the masses forward. And like, that's what I am concerned about. So Bitcoin as being something that requires energy and incentivizes energy production is, is the opposite incentive to what we're experiencing now, which is a system, however you want to explain it, that decentivizes energy production. Um, and I think that ultimately, decentivizing energy production doesn't make the world greener, right? Producing energy in productive, efficient, logically consistent ways is how we, you know, make the most of all the resources that we have at our disposable. And again, I think that Bitcoin aligns incentives there. And, you know, we need Bitcoin, guys. <laughs> like, we desperately need it because the, our current governance set is, is, is pushing us into, into poverty by effectively pricing us out of energy. Yeah, I think disincentivizing energy production is just a way, it's like, I just picture in my head, you know, walking into enslavement, because uh, your, your economy is not going to do very well, your neighbors that don't have these same crazy policies are going to do better than you. And you are going to be at the whim of uh, neighbors. So take uh, Russia's relationship with the EU right now. 
I mean, Russia owns the EU. If they want to cut off heating um, natural gas to the EU, they can. So that is, I mean, if you just, <laughs> you are uh, putting a shackle around your leg if you don't follow the, the proper uh, economics on this. And that is not towards wind and solar, at least at this time, because it's just not uh, sustainable or it's not um, reliable enough. I mean, and again, it's like, why no, I just don't understand why no nuclear, right? Like that, that it just like that is perplexing in of in itself, other than the fact that it's less profitable for the producers, right? You know, wind and solar is very profitable for the people who actually produce that stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Um, well, but wind and solar are profitable for the shovel makers, right? Exactly. The people, it's profitable, yeah. more profitable for the industry. Right. Well, yeah. I was, it just I was, makes less sense. I was, uh, you know, growing up in the 80s, I was always thinking that, oh, it's just a matter of time before we have many reactors at each house and we have this decentralized grid. And no, I mean, that's that's nowhere near in the future. Well, I mean, again, <laughs> Bitcoiners are the only ones who are painting a future where that is even realistic again. So uh, I think that Bitcoiners are the only people who are painting a beautiful vision of the future, right? Everyone else is painting yeah. dystopia, eating bugs, you'll own nothing reducing <laughs> reducing you are the carbon that they are trying to reduce in their uh image of the future uh and and i think you know bitcoiners have a much more wholesome vision uh where again the world is bountiful and it's a beautiful vision so i think ultimately that's why bitcoin wins and uh you know we have we have the underlying economics to prove it and we talk about that every day on this show um do we want to talk about bitcoin hitting hitting all-time highs uh and do we want to talk about some of the stuff that you talk about in your macro rundown uh or uh should we just wrap this one here well i'll just plug the macro rundown so if you guys go to bitcoinandmarkets.com you can find a post that i did yesterday and i cover oil and natural gas the energy crisis both in europe and the us i do it in chart format so you can see the prices of different things um production forecast like official forecasts of production etc like i was just talking about um i also cover the dollar uh in detail and i compare the dollar to the fed balance sheet in one chart and that's really really cool so go check that out and also lastly i wrap it up with shipping container rates i look at the baltic dry index as well as freightos uh, which is the 40 foot containers you know the famous or the the ones that you know from looking at the big container ships they're sitting off of uh, Long Beach there in California, all those containers. So the, the container rates for those, those specific things and compare them to where they have been in the past, uh, where they are now and where I think they possibly are going in the future. So check out bitcoinandmarkets.com and, and the macro chart rundown. Yeah, no, subscribe to Ansel's newsletter, guys. Some of the best information out there. Yo, my fellow Bitcoin lovers, have I got something specifically curated for you. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium markets intelligence newsletter. This isn't some pay group selling buy and sell signals. No, this is a premium Bitcoin analysis led by Dylan LeClaire and his team of analysts. They break down in an easily digestible way what is happening on chain in the derivatives markets and in the greater macro backdrop context for Bitcoin. This newsletter turns volatility into a joke. So hit up members.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code podcast for 30% off the deep dive. That's members.bitcoinmagazine.com promo code podcast for 30% off. Divorce your paid group and learn why Bitcoin is the ultimate asset by Dylan and his team. My fellow plubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. 
Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Yeah, I guess let's just talk about Bitcoin price. You know, I feel like, you know, we don't talk Bitcoin price that much on the show. We're both generally Bitcoin bulls, um, but not surprised. Again, I feel like these all-time highs, they're a little boring. And we were talking about this last week with Dylan, is that if you look on chain, like this is like accumulation right now. So we're accumulating at all-time highs on chain and there's no sign. You know, we're at the sign of the beginning of a of a parabolic move up, uh, not, you know, at the end. So uh, I think there's a lot more to go with Bitcoin. You know, I think people who subscribe to the bull cycle, uh, you know, histor- historic performance, uh, typically will say that this is about the time where Bitcoin starts doing something and, and really making some, some headlines. But uh, I guess, what are your takes here? Yeah, well, um, I, I think I agree completely that consolidation at the top is what we're seeing. Um, and there is no resistance above us, right? So uh, technical analysts will look at the chart and they will find areas of, you know, um, massive areas of selling or buying and support uh, or resistance on the chart. And there's nothing, right? If you're at all-time highs, there's nothing above you. Now, now you have to start looking at the Fibonacci extensions and, and things of that nature. So um, yeah, it's very, very bullish. I don't like that we're hanging around just above the all-time high. You know, every day we seem to be going just another $100 or $1,000 above the all-time high. Um, I would like to see a nice $5,000 day, and that would really solidify this breakout in my mind, um, but all bullish. And, and the fundamentals also, uh, show that. So the hash rate is going up. I think it went up seven and a half percent on the last difficulty adjustment, which is very significant, uh, even considering there's, you know, the, the uh, chip shortage is still uh, taking a toll. And also the on-chain, like I mentioned earlier, the on-chain volume is insane. Like there was something like uh, 8 million Bitcoins transacted on-chain the other day. So that is a really good sign for velocity of Bitcoin moving around and the fundamentals are solid. The price that's, is solid. That's like 2x I, the liquid bullish. supply. That's 2x yeah, the liquid well, supply. So, I mean, if the velocity is uh, every Bitcoin gets used twice per day, that's liquid. Like that's much, much better than the dollar. Yeah, I think it was four four million and then a week later it was six million. And then a week later after that, it was eight million or something. So it was pretty crazy. Well, bull markets will do that, but at the same time, fees are incredibly cheap. How do you explain that, Ansel? Whales, institutional buying. It's got to be. It's got to be some big, uh, big money buying in. So, I mean, is this is this just kind of a sign of of uh, Bitcoin is best for high value transactions, and as long as the value of the transactions are enormous, you know, fees will be incredibly cheap. Yeah, I think so. I think there obviously is going to be a dynamic, and I've been talking about this for years. There's going to be a dynamic between uh, layer two and on-chain because as we go forward in the future and fees become a more important part of the block reward, there is going to be a dynamic that develops for on-chain. And I think the, the fees will be much more expensive than today, but how much more expensive, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, two things I like to try to put things into perspective, at least my mentality on it. And I think I'm hyper bullish on on the perspective of Bitcoin security. But one is what percentage of, you know, like global economic activity is happening on Bitcoin versus the traditional system? What do you think? That's the question. Oh, one percent at this point, maybe two. Right. So, okay. So let's just say, let's just be kind and say 2% is happening. So, I mean, what do you think on chain is going to look like when ni- when 95% or hundred percent of economic activity is settling on the Bitcoin? Like we, like that's an exponential increase in, in economic activity. So uh, if Bitcoin succeeds, that is what that success looks like. So I think, you know, we're going to see a very, very different fee dynamic. The second thing is, I personally think that 
fees and block reward denominated in sats are going to go down. Both fees and block reward, you know, denominated in some sort of like real life buying power are going to continue to skyrocket um, in value. And I think mining is going to be incredibly lucrative. So the breakdown between the fee market and the block reward, I don't really know what's going to dominate, right? I think that there's a lot of block rewards still being pumped out. Um, and I just think that people just have a tough time with exponentials. And uh, right now, my name on Twitter is 37 sats. That's the block reward in 100 years. And I, I personally think that that is going to be a dominant like incentive to mining Bitcoin in 100 years is to get those 37 sats. So, uh, you know, we can go beyond Satoshi's. We can continue to uh, subtract or, uh, uh, you know, fractionalize beyond that point. And, uh, you know, th this shit is going to get wild, guys. Like, I, I think that we're very early still. Well, I have a question. Um, I, I'm not technical enough to know this answer, but, you know, the fees for to get your trans your transaction in in the next 24 hours has been sitting at one sat per virtual byte for a long time. Now, is that um, can it be less than one sat per virtual byte? I think with uh, with a soft fork, it can. And it already, I mean, okay. in terms of like, you can go to Mila Satoshi's on the on the Lightning Network too. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just yeah, thinking I, if, I, if if one if one Satoshi is the minimum fee per transaction, that's a pretty hefty fee in the future. Yeah, if the block reward is only thirty seven sats, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, again. Uh, if Bitcoin wins, I think it's literally a certainty that we're going to go past Satoshi's. Um, we're going to we're going to subdivide past Satoshi's, and uh, you know who knows how how big this thing gets if it truly is the the underlying base infrastructure for all value transfer. Um, that's uh, I just feel like our human minds can't even grasp how the how the math works on that. Yeah, I thought I thought a uh, sub Satoshi would be a hard fork, but. I think Bitcoin has to do a hard fork in the future because isn't there like a 2038 bug or something like that? So um, in that hard fork, we can do the millisatoshis. I thought I, I've heard that it can be soft forked in, but you know, uh, I'll defer to you as uh, as more of the well, Bitcoin. I'm, OG no, I'm no expert on that. <laughs> no, I'm no expert on that. All right. Well, hey, we're, we'll have to get that answered uh, ASAP because uh, that is pivotal to my theory that 37 sats <laughs> is going to be more than enough to uh, to incentivize mining in the future. All right, Ansel, I think that this was a fun rip. Uh, Y'all, tell us how you thought of this podcast. Uh, follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Find all of our stuff at Bitcoin Magazine and BitcoinMagazine.com. 